Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Are you ready for what God has for you today? Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, I know one thing for sure. God wants to do something new in you. There is nothing more exciting than knowing that God is at work, even if we can't see what He's doing and have to wait a while to find out. He is always good, so our lives are safe and secure in His hands, no matter what that new thing is. I'm Chris Voigt, and I have the immense privilege of leading the team here at Dayspring. It certainly keeps me on my toes because that team expends endless energy helping people grow. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that you can come as you. We're just like you, regular people on a journey discovering what God has for us each day, and each day saying yes to becoming like Jesus, one step at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to figure out what your yes is today, and tomorrow, and the next day slowly becoming like Jesus. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey, even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on. This is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. And now, let's join our service. We have a lot to cover today. Uh, we're going to hit 42 verses, or at least try to. We might be doing dinner together this evening. <laughs> but before we dive in, uh, in the annals of I can't get away with anything, I really must start with an apology. Uh, last week in my message, I used a no-no word in our family. I don't remember where, why, or how. The word wasn't in my notes, which means I ad-libbed it. But somewhere in there, I said the word stupid. At the time, Dee Dee leaned over to Lexi and said, we don't say stupid. So I know I said it. What I, what I didn't know at the time or forgot rather, is that Children's Ministries has been streaming our service into the children's classrooms so that they can join our worship, which means that my granddaughter Avery was listening to Pop's talk on TV. Sunday afternoon, she told her mama, and I quote, when I was watching Pop's on the screen at church in my class, I heard him say stupid, and we don't say that. <laughs> so Avery Pop's is sorry. <laughs> The, those of us big people in the room or watching online know how humorous this little situation is. Kids are like sponges, absorbing everything that they see us do and hear us say. And then at first, not really understanding what they are seeing or hearing, they, are, they begin to parrot it back to us. So you correct that. 
with we don't say stupid or we shouldn't do that, whatever it is. Sadly, it isn't long before understanding brings intentionality and we have little imitators beginning to look and act like dad and mom or pops and Grammy as the case may be, or their friends. And believe it or not, that leads us right into Ephesians. If you are joining us for the first time today, we have been working our way through the Apostle Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus in a series that we've titled uh, Ephesians, Becoming Who You Are. Today we're in the back half of the letter. We'll be starting at the top of chapter 5 and working our way into chapter 6. As we've seen so far, the moment you surrender your life to Jesus, some major shifts occur at your cellular level. Uh, of your identity, some, some pretty major things that were not true just moments before become true in the twinkling of an eye. Our citizenship changes as we become citizens of heaven. Our adoption papers are sealed by the presence of the Holy Spirit who moves into our heart and begins to make himself at home. And with his presence, even though we still wage war in these physically decaying bodies, he brings our dead spirit to life forever and empowers us to explore the riches of the immeasurable love of Christ, which changes us. It deepens our spiritual roots. The more we grow to understand and experience his love, the more his love moves in and through us though it doesn't find its full expression until we learn to give it away as we love others like Jesus loved us in the beautiful body of Christ that we call the church, which in turn reveals Jesus to the lost and dying world. And much like the little Averys of the world, grow, we, we grow from parroting their role model Jesus, to imitating him. We do that same thing. The whole process makes us imitators of Christ. In this next section of Ephesians, Paul continues to unpack what a life powered by the Holy Spirit looks like practically. Let's pick it up in the last two verses of chapter 4. Now, remember that this is one cohesive letter. It wasn't until the 1500s that chapters and verses were added to the, to the pages of Scripture to help us navigate scripture, they, which were a great addition, but can also disconnect one section from another in our minds. So chapter four ends like this. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Chapter 5, imitate God, therefore. That is, therefore, since God through Christ has forgiven you, verse 32, you should therefore imitate God in everything you do because you are his still children, dear children. Live a life filled with love. Some translations return to the imagery of walking like Christ here. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. But here, live a life filled with love following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. 
way back in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, we see that a sacrifice given from the a sincere heart of a wholehearted worshiper was a pleasing aroma, a fragrant offering. Uh, and Christ's sacrifice was the ultimate in ex acceptable sacrifices. As commentator Tony Merida put it, Christ's sacrifice gave the perfume of grace and glory. So let there be a holy fragrance of love in your life as you imitate God by walking in the power of love, following the pattern of love that we see in Jesus. Since God is love, imitate God's love as you walk in love. The, the Bible also tells us that God is light. And in these next verses, we are admonished to not only imitate love, but to imitate light as well. And since we are children of light, let there be no sexual immorality. Uh, the Greek word here is porneia, which you might guess is the common root of pornography. Uh, Paul is referring to all kinds of sexual sin outside of marriage. And no impurity, which is anything that pollutes our heart, mind, or body. The, the kind of moral uncleanness that leads to guilt shame, habitual sin, obsessions, addictions, or anything like that that might take your life into a spiral out of control. And no greed among you, which not only refers to a hunger for more material things, but also an uncontrollable appetite for something else, including an, insati an insatiable appetite for sex, if you cross-reference it to Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Such sins have no place among God's people because ultimately the habitual practice of these sins elevates the gratification of your own desires into little g gods. They usurp God's rightful place. They become idols that should never be. God's people are God worshipers, not idol worshipers. Next, Paul moves from immoral works to immoral words. Verse 4, let there also be no obscene stories. Uh, depending on your translation, obscene stories might be translated as filthiness or corrupt speech. This would be innuendo or suggestive speech or degrading language that robs someone of their dignity. And no foolish talk. Now in Greek, this is the same word that we get the term moron from which means a fool. So don't be a moron, which in the Bible, a fool is not generally someone lacking in intellectual ability, but someone who denies the reality of God. Here, it would include that and pointless, empty, and foolish talk. Anything that is not profitable or edifying. And no coarse jokes, which would be any form of humor that makes something seem suggestive sensual or immoral. But please note, laughter is a gift from God. So unhealthy humor, bad. Healthy humor, good. These works, these are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. So instead of tearing one another down, corrupting one another, use the power of your tongue for good, not evil. Because we know that when gratitude fills your heart, a vocabulary of thanksgiving inhabits your words. Verse 5. You can be sure 
that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater, worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. As Chuck Swindoll says, Paul is talking about shameful, shameless continuation of sinful lifestyles. Unchanging and unchangeable, even in the face of confrontation and discipline. Unrepentant sinners will not inherit the kingdom of Christ, but will inherit the anger of God. Verse 7. Don't participate in the things these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord, so live as people of light. That is, live out your new identity. Live out of the light instead of darkness. As it says here in verse 8, that is what you once were. It is not who you are now. We were once a part of the problem itself. We aren't who we used to be. We aren't that anymore. He shines through us, so don't dim his light. It's meant to be more than a pilot light. It's supposed to be a lighthouse. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Now, I would give credit where credit is due if I could remember who said this. But a smart person once said, Christ in me is stronger than the wrong desires in me. We we serve a God more satisfying than any temptation of the darkness. And his yes is more powerful than any no that could ever tempt us. So focus on the yes. Say yes to walking as children of light. And if you don't know what I'm referring to with the yes and no, watch last week's message. We need a complete reorienting of our life, turning away from the path of darkness as we embrace the path of light. Verse 11. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. So in, contrasting, uh, in contrast to life in the light, the deeds of darkness have a devastating impact on everyone. When we persist with dark deeds, we hurt our fellow believers and we confuse people lost in the dark. We become a barrier between the cross and someone else's eternity. Didi and I have had multiple conversations with, about Christ with my wonderful grandmother. One of her big objections to Christianity is the Christians she knows in her community. They preach Christ while lying, slandering, defrauding, and abusing others. That's a confusing message to people lost in the dark. That's not what children, living as children of light is supposed to look like. Living in the light, letting the light shine ever more brightly through you will expose the deeds of darkness. As we see in these next verses, simply by imitating the light of Christ, we will expose the dark and shine away for those stumbling around looking for hope. Verse 12, it is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them. For the light makes everything visible. 
This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now the final words of verse 14 are probably from a hymn of repentance and encouragement sung by the early church. And in quoting them, Paul is reminding his readers that the light of Christ's glory has pushed back the night, which is what makes living as children of light possible. So, so far we are called to be imitators of God's love. We are to be imitators of God's light. And next up, we are to be imitators of God's wisdom. And Paul gives us in these next few verses five wisdom principles for Christian living. First in verse 15. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. So principle number one, the conduct principle. Be careful how you live. The Greek word here carries the idea of precision and accuracy. See that you walk carefully, with exactness. Walk with intentionality as you make decisions to do the will of God. As we've already seen today in Scripture, the lack of wisdom means living as if God's, God doesn't exist. It's living your everyday life as if his perspective isn't relative, relevant. So walking with care and exactness means acknowledging the Lord in all of your ways, being careful to make decisions that align with your new identity in Christ. It's living so as to not grieve the Holy Spirit who lives within you. And then in verse 16... Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Principle number two is the time principle. In the original language, the intent is that we make the most of every opportunity by buying back or redeeming the time, even rescuing from waste or abuse. Jesus bought back or rescued us from our enslavement to sin and death. And we are now to buy back our time by ensuring that our everyday opportunities align with his purposes. In his commentary, Charles Swindoll says that, says that we are either procrastinators or workaholics. Procrastinators passively resist God's purposes for their lives. Workaholics disregard the joy of peace and rest. So procrastinators can buy back time through discipline, directing their energies into what really matters, which means prioritizing and planning and staying focused. And workaholics can buy back or redeem time by recognizing that we were made for meaningful relationships with him and others as we enjoy creation. By remembering that people are more important than projects. By trusting that what you accomplish is enough. And believing that he will make that enough. And the reason for us to redeem our time is because the days are evil. Which can mean either that we use our time wisely in order to counter the evil of this world. Or that the world tempts us to spend our time frivolously on things that don't matter for eternity. Either way, with careful intentionality, redeem your time. The third principle is the decision-making principle found in verse 17. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. Now, building on the first two principles, don't be foolish. 
Seek to understand or discern God's will for your life, which could be a whole series in and of itself. So I won't be able to do it justice here today. When it comes to God's will for your life, most of the time we focus on our specific uh, calling or situation. I often have people ask me for wisdom or advice about God's specific will for them. And maybe we'll tackle some of those principles another time. But for today, rather than focusing on God's specific will for your life or your specific calling, let's consider what we know about his general will for all believers. The need to understand and discern his general will generally comes before his specific will anyway. And it is by learning to understand his general will that we will learn the skills to help us understand his specific skill, his specific will. We just try to put the cart before the horse. Fortunately, the New Testament is filled with verses that communicate God's general will for all believers. Romans 12.2 tells us that it is God's will that we no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that it is God's will for us to abstain from sexual immorality. 2 Peter 2 tells us that we are to submit to every human institution. It is through our submission that we silence the ignorance of foolishness. We, we silence those who disregard God. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that we are to endure sorrow that leads to repentance. There are, there are so many verses that communicate God's general will for all Christ followers. If we spent more of our time discovering and pursuing the will of God that has been made explicit in Scripture, there would be little time for other distractions. We need only look at prayerfully to his word with an open mind and willing heart, thinking through all of our decisions in light of biblical principles, seeking the counsel of those who are wiser than us, and then stepping forward in humble faith. He's pretty good at taking care of the rest. Become faithful students and practitioners of his general will. That's the proving ground for faithfulness to his specific will, his specific calling in your life. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Okay, verses 18 to 20. Don't be drunk with wine, because that will ruin your life. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and make, making music to the Lord in your hearts. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the fourth principle is the control principle. The contrast here is being out of control versus under the Spirit's control. Though Paul specifically mentions drunkenness here, I think we can extrapolate to any kind of lack of control. If something other than the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, then you are on the same path to ruin that the drunkard is in verse 18. So the lack of control could manifest itself in some other addiction. Uh, shopping, pornography, social media, television, in any form, drug, drug use. Th those are just some examples. I would suggest that any time you are looking to fill yourself or maybe numb yourself with anything other than the Holy Spirit, this principle would apply. Whereas people controlled by the Spirit have clarity of mind. Their hearts are full of joy, overflowing with praise. The Spirit of God fills their hearts with gratitude, which overflows through their mouths in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In Greek, being filled by the Spirit is a passive command, 
meaning that we are to allow the Spirit to fill us with all of his blessings as he empowers our godly living, leading us toward righteousness. We are fully surrendered. And then last but not least, the fifth principle. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the submission principle. This is another reminder that no man is an island. We are not meant to live our lives apart from the body of Christ. As we see here, we are meant to subject ourselves to one another. Galatians tells us to carry each other's burdens. Hebrews tells us to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Philippians tells us to look out for one another's interests. We were created for deep community. In fact, we can't grow outside of deep community. We learned that in our last series. We are hardwired to grow together. This submission principle is so important that Paul spends most of the rest of this letter unpacking submission in the context of marriage, parenting, and employment. But before we go there, let's just pause for a moment. If someone could figure out how to make, uh, move Christmas back a week, we could stop here for today. There's already plenty to chew on. But since we have no time lords in our membership, we're going to keep moving forward. So let's just take a, I appreciate that there are some Doctor Who fans in here. Let's just, let's just take a deep breath to prepare ourselves. Just a deep breath in and out. Before, before we get to this next section, I want to remind you of what we believe about doctrine and theology here at Dayspring. When it comes to theology, we have essential and non-essential doctrines in the church. An essential doctrine is a defining doctrine for Christianity. If you don't believe it, it isn't Christianity. For example, Jesus paid the ultimate penalty for our sins in our place on the cross. He was dead, buried, and three days later conquered death as he rose again. That is essential doctrine. If you don't believe that, you are following a different Jesus than I am. In a non-essential doctrine is one that is open to interpretation, and that's okay. The scriptures aren't always explicit, so when something is unclear, we have the freedom to figure it out. An example of a non-essential doctrine would be speaking in tongues. Some branches of Christianity, of, of, of the church, believe that speaking in tongues was primarily a first century church practice, and with the printing of the Bible, it, it is no longer necessary. And some branches go so far as to say that all believers should speak in tongues, and it should be a normal part of our practice. Lots of denominations land somewhere in the middle. When you study the scriptures objectively, you can see the possibility for both extremes. And since God's word does not say explicitly one way or another, we can agree to disagree and still be in fellowship with each other. Because speaking in tongues is a non-essential doctrine of the church. And above all, in the face of disagreement, we allow grace to flow through it all and fill the cracks in our relationships. All that to say, this next section about submission in marriage brings us into non-essential theology land. 
I'm going to tell you what we believe the Bible teaches about men and women in sub and submission in the context of marriage. But if you disagree, that's okay. I'm not trying to convince you that I am right and you are wrong. It's non-essential, so you do you. Uh, wherever you land on this issue, I want to invite you to just let your walls down and listen. Listen to the Spirit as we tackle this subject. Sound good? As a side note, the pastors and elders spent more than two years together unpacking everything the Bible had to say about the roles of men and women in marriage and in the church. So we've studied this at great depth and are in complete unity about it. That it took the pastors and elders two years to work our way through the entirety of Scripture tells you that this is a complex issue. For the sake of time, I am going to simplify the principles for today. If you want to do a deep dive on your own, you can connect with me and I'll point you to some resources that might be helpful. Okay, now breathe once more. I think, I think we're ready for this now. I'd like to tackle this section a little differently than we've been doing so far. I'm going to read through the entire rest of the chapter so that we all have the big picture and then I'll unpack it from there. Uh, remember that in verse 21, Paul has given us an unqualified, gender-neutral, submit-to-one-another statement. Men submit to men, men submit to women, women submit to women, women submit to men. It's an all-inclusive statement about submission as he leads into and continues in verse 22. For wives... This means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Now, in order to understand what Paul means here, we have a few questions we have to answer. The first, and I think the most important question we have to answer is, what does Paul mean when he uses the word head in verse 23? 
In English, we use the term head to describe the person in charge. The head coach is in charge of the team. The head chef is in charge of the kitchen. We use it so commonly that in English, we think it seems obvious that Paul means that the husband is in charge of the wife. He is the authority figure in a hierarchical structure. He is the top and everyone answers to him. But to say that someone is the head of something is actually a metaphor. And a metaphor that is used in one culture doesn't necessarily mean the same thing in another. And this was true in the Greek language. Using the term head to mean the person in charge was unknown in classical Greek. In Hebrew, however, Paul would have been aware of a very few instances in the Greek Old Testament where the word head could have possibly been a figure of speech for the leading or most prominent person. So, from Hebrew to Greek, the word was kephale, and kephale could mean the person in charge. But in Greek, And Paul was writing in Greek to a Greek body of believers in Turkey. In Greek, if a writer used the term kephale in relation to the body, they would more likely be indicating something like the source of life and nourishment. Because the head provided life and nourishment to the body. The head enables the body to live and grow, to flourish. We might look at these two meanings as life flows from me, uh, flows, sorry, life flows to me versus life flows, flows from me. Like the headwaters of a river. You bless me or I bless you. You serve me or I serve you. Now, clearly, both meanings apply to Jesus in the grand scheme of things. But kephale is never used to mean both things at the same time. The context will point to one meaning or the other, depending on how the word is used. So, for helping us to understand this passage, we have two possibilities. Person in charge or source of life and nourishment. So, is the husband the person in charge of the wife or is the husband the source of life and nourishment? Since Paul is stating that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, the answer will be in what Paul means about Christ being the head of the church in this verse. Earlier in this letter, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, Paul uses this same word, kephale, about Jesus. And while not everyone agrees, since he is using it in reference to Christ being far and above all rule and authority, we can probably agree that he is talking about the hierarchical head or top banana. Christ is in charge of the church. He rules over the church. Paul uses kephale a second time in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 15. But here the context conveys Christ as the source of the church's nourishment and growth. So if we're keeping score on the way Paul uses kephale in his writing, that means the score is tied and we're in overtime. Or are we? Since Paul just gave a unilateral gender-free submit-to-one-another instruction, 
And in light of how Paul unpacks the way men are supposed to love their wives in verses 25 to 29, we should assume that Paul here means that the husband is not the hierarchical head, but the source of life and nourishment for his wife specifically and for his family in general. If the husband were meant to be the person in charge in a marriage, there wouldn't be, couldn't be by definition, mutual submission. There are some other technical in-the-weeds reasons to support this view, but I won't go into them here. Other than to say that in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul instructs husbands and wives to be mutually submitted to each other in the bedroom. And if they are equal in the most intimate of places, how much more so outside the bedroom? So men are the source of life and nourishment of their wives, which then helps answer why wives are submit to submit to their husbands. It isn't because their husbands are in charge of them, but because in marriage, we find a picture of the church's relationship to Christ. And in the larger context in that culture, there was no marriage for love. Marriage was a business transaction and women were the currency of exchange. Their rights were just above those of slaves. But in the church, women were learning that there was no male or female, no slave or free, that all were equal through Christ. And they were coming home to their unbelieving spouses with attitude. That attitude becoming a barrier between their husband and the cross. So even though you are equal, women submit to your husbands as if they were in charge of you, that you might win them to Christ. Check out 1 Corinthians for more if you want. And what do we mean by submit anyway? Biblically, to submit means to use all of your authority, your power, your resources, and your time for the benefit of another person. So in context, women, when you submit, you model the relationship of the church to Jesus as you use all of your authority, your power, your resources, and your time for the benefit of your husband. And husbands, since you model the relationship of Jesus to the church, you use all of your authority, your power, your resources, and your time for the benefit of your wife. I guarantee you, if all Christian husbands and wives were to live out this definition of submission, no one would have a problem with this passage. Now, remember that this is Paul unpacking what imitating Christ looks like in our everyday relationships. So men, he's not done with us yet. We are to love our wives in the deepest Christ-centered meaning of the word. As a commodity, women were stuck in marriages where love was only measured by performance in the bedroom, if that, that was in a good marriage. But that isn't how Christ loves the church. So be like Jesus. Model the love Jesus has for the church as you love your wife. Cherish her. Serve her. Prioritize her. When we do this well, we reveal Jesus to the world. Now, I could say lots more on this subject, but I think that's enough for now. Here at Dayspring, we believe that Paul is communicating that marriage is to be a mutually submitted relationship where both the husband and the wife are using all of their authority, 
power, resources, and time for each other by choice because of what it models to the world about Jesus. Now, Paul continues this idea of imitating Christ in our everyday relationships as we move into chapter 6. Verse 1, children, obey your parents because you belong to the Lord, for this is the right thing to do. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. If you honor your father and mother, things will go well for you, and you will have a long life on the earth. And notice that Paul didn't tell the parents to tell their children to obey. I think he knew that wouldn't work. He told the kids himself, obey your parents because harmony in the home should also give the world a picture of harmony in the church. And even children fall under the you submit to me, I submit to you instruction Paul gave in chapter 5. I should point out that, in, that submission in no way indicates inferiority. Jesus himself submitted himself to the authority of his earthly parents when he was a child, and he clearly wasn't inferior to Joseph and Mary. Voluntary submission leads to blessing and harmony in every relationship. I should also point out that this is instruction to children. Not adult children, mind you, but children currently under the authority of their parents. Adult children are not called to obey their parents as we see here in this verse. Adult children are called to honor their parents. I know Christian parents who try or have tried to control their adult children using this verse. This isn't what it means. To honor means you listen, you value, you seek input. But as an adult, you aren't under the thumb of your parents. And parents who try this route usually end up damaging the relationship that they have with their adult children. Of course, at that time, children became adults around the age of 13 or 14. So it's probably a little fuzzier for us today. And by the way, honoring your parents is a lifelong command and includes how you care for them as they age. One of Jesus' big beefs with the religious leaders in his day was how they weren't caring for theirs. I really try to honor my parents, all of my dads, my father-in-law, and my mom, because it is right to be, sh to be sure. But even more than that, I want the blessing that Paul promises, which isn't a guarantee that I'll never get sick and will live to be 100. But children who learn from the wisdom of their parents will avoid all sorts of destructive hardships. And there is a heavenly blessing that flows through honor, a protection, if you will. And, and left to their own devices, kids will rebel. We see this all over our culture, don't we? So discipline and instruction are necessary. But dads, do not provoke your children to anger by the way you treat them. Rather, bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Dads, and I think we can assume moms in our day and age, the family operates a little differently today than then. So parents, we provoke our children by saying one thing and doing another, by blaming and never praising, by being inconsistent and unfair, by showing favoritism, by not keeping our promises, and by making light of the problems and challenges our kids face. 
don't do that. Nurture them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, not just providing a roof over their heads and clothes to wear. Nurture them emotionally and spiritually. In your mutual submission that you are modeling so your kids know what it looks like later in life, use your authority, your power, your resources, and your time for the benefit of your children. And then, last, imitate Christ in the workplace. Verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them all the time, not just when they are watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. Now, at this point, I think you get the point. Everywhere you go, with everyone you meet, in every situation, what does love require? That we imitate Christ and love like Jesus. Imitate love. Imitate light. Imitate wisdom. And imitate submission. How are you doing in those four areas? Let's pray. Father, what a high calling to imitate Jesus in, in any respect, let alone these four big ones. And I know that um, I, as, as sure as I, I, I know that you are God above all, all of the, the universe watching over us, I know that you are at work here in our hearts and you have brought to mind at least one area in each of our lives that we aren't imitating very well. We might not be loving the way Jesus loved or shining the way we're supposed to shine, or we might be using earthly wisdom instead of godly wisdom, or we might be struggling in submission. Father, give us the courage to act like, think like, and believe like Jesus. Give us the courage to imitate our Savior that the world will know that you love them. We pray in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Working through those questions, alone or with others, will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring 
who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you're just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website, or text GIVE to the number on your screen, or mail a check to us at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing. Thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, may you experience great joy in the presence of Jesus.